Good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. It's so good to have you with us this morning. I get even more pumped when there's a baptism. So if I'm a little bit more excited, well, you weren't in last service, so you won't know the difference. So, but either way, um, I'm excited to be with you here this morning. Um, And I just wanted to talk about last week for a minute where uh, you were encouraged to take one of those pray, invest, invite cards last week. Um, uh, If you took one of those, I encourage you to have someone else to pray with you uh, for these other people that you're investing in their lives um, and so that they can participate as you um, share the truth with people and invest in their lives. And uh, so... We're going to be getting into a new series now called This Is Us. Now, if you look around at all the different churches, you'll see different churches have different beliefs and different, uh, even different personalities in the way that, you know, things are presented. And one of the things that you hear a lot here is that, you know, our mission is to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Like that's in front of everything that we do. And then along with that, comes our core values, and our core values are what make essentially us, us. They drive all the ministries. We have, we do the different ministries, but there's a, there's a why behind it, and the why is these core values that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. So I encourage you to come. You're basically going to learn what the DNA is, essentially, of Bridgewater. So the first one today is going to be we give because he gave. Um, when it comes to when it comes to church, we value radical generosity. But why would we do that? Why choose to give in a world that's so consumed with getting? We value generosity because God has been so generous to us. He gave his only son. Jesus, God has given us the ultimate gift, and that drives our values, our joy, and our responsibility to respond to that and give to others. So, but this morning, I wanted to share with you about my love for the movie series, Indiana Jones. So... Recently, we went, my family and I, we went to see Indiana Jones Dial Destiny. And I thought they did a really good job. I don't, I can't believe what they do with CGI. They made Harrison Ford look young. It's amazing. Um, But anyways, so, but watching that reminded me of growing up and watching Indiana Jones. And I would get so pumped up. I would get so excited about it. And I said, man, when I grow up, I want to be an archaeologist. Because they get to do cool things, Right? So I thought, right? So, <clears throat> so I got all excited about it. You know, I'm going to discover these ancient things and this supernatural phenomenon. And um, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to discover these fascinating places. And then, and then I'm like, oh, well, then I could find about like events in, in Bible history. I could go and find Noah's Ark. Like that'd be really exciting, Right? Um, I, I had a professor of mine that he's, he, he, he went a couple times to where they believe the Noah's Ark is and went to try and find it. It's very dangerous. He survived, but he didn't find it. Um, but all, all these things. And then, and then I come to find out, it's 
not really what I thought it was, right? Um, I never followed through on this ambition because later I learned that, okay, you go on an archaeological dig, uh, you know, that, that's not that exciting. And most of the time spent in archaeology documenting and writing papers and examining geological layouts and all that sort of stuff, or like being behind a desk or a computer, and, and there was even math involved, and oh, I definitely don't want that. <clears throat> so apparently running quickly through an ancient tunnel with a ball rolling after you is not something that I could look forward to, or even going after the Holy Grail was not something that I could look forward to doing. So I didn't become an archaeologist. I didn't become Indiana Jones. Um, instead, I chose to pursue um, understanding the recesses of people's minds. Um, <laughs> so if you tested my commitment to becoming an archaeologist, you would say I don't meet the mark. But that's one way that we can know whether we're committed to something or not is by having some sort of a test, um, something that shows whether we are capable of doing something. Um, I've not many, met many that like taking tests. How many in here like taking tests? All right, I got a couple. That was more than last service. All right. I do not like, I, I do not like writing papers. So I will take a test all day long before I write a paper. Okay, I do not like it at all. So that's probably why I married an English teacher. Okay. <laughs> so, but in, in chemistry, we have something called a litmus test. And that test is determined whether something is an acid or a base using litmus paper. But a litmus test in general terms can be political or it can be a moral issue. But what happens is a question is asked to make a judgment on whether something or someone is acceptable. So let's take a look at the book of 1 John. We'll enter into something of a litmus test for the true believer. In the book of 1 John, the disciple of Jesus, John, the author, takes us through a series of tests to help us to determine how loving we are. How well do we treat each other? Do those who claim to follow Jesus truly love people? Then he goes even deeper what real love looks like and makes a profound statement about the fact of real love. He said, there is one place to go to understand what love looks like. And shock of all shocks, he points to Jesus. Look no further, he says. This is the once for all demonstration and expression of love. It's the clincher, it's the purest, truest quality of love. Love is generous. 1 John 3, 16a says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What a simple yet profound verse. There is so much to that statement that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's what love is. That is the example of what love is. So why did he even have to do that? Why, why did he choose to lay down his life for us? And why is that so significant for us? So I'm just going to take you through... Um, 
a little bridge here to help you uh, grasp this aspect of it. And that's this first part is shows God and man. So here's God and man. We desire a relationship with God. God desires a relationship with us. Okay. But God is perfect and he is holy. Right. And so there's a problem. See, what happens is that we are separated by sin. Scripture says that there are none righteous, not one. There's none that understands and says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So our sin separates us from God. Because of our sin, we deserve punishment in hell. And there's nothing we can do in our own power to cross that chasm to get over to God. Nothing we can do. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that he could create that bridge from man to God. So he could create that bridge so we could cross over by faith. If you trust Jesus as your forgiver and leader, then you will be saved. And there is no greater sacrifice than this. For we were stuck in our sin and a perfect and holy God laid down his life for us so that we could have life. That is generosity. <clears throat> Recently, this is a, um, a movie that I've watched a lot. In fact, I just thought about this. I didn't really ever read the books, but I'm famous for not reading fiction books to my wife's dismay. Um, this book is called The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Ro Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And the story of this is what happens is that there's this group of four Siblings, They enter into this fantasy world. And in this fantasy world, um, there is a wicked queen that is coming after them. Because they're supposed to save the world. The wicked queen is coming after them. And so in the process, one of the siblings betrays the other siblings by telling the wicked queen where the rest of them are. And so the wicked queen comes to get them. So what happens is he betrays the other siblings, and so because of his betrayal, there must be a payment that is made. So the evil queen comes and says, there must be a payment that is made, or else this particular sibling, he will lose his life. <clears throat> and then Aslan comes, the ruler of the land comes, he returns, and <clears throat> He goes forth here, as you see in this picture, he's going forth willingly to go ahead and lay down his life so that that one, so that sibling, that boy does not have to die. So Aslan, the lion, lays down his life, is tortured and killed and shaved and, and he's killed so that this boy can live. And that's the ultimate sacrifice for um, is to give your life for someone. This is a standard for love, is laying down your life for someone else. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only Son, but who, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I always mess that one up because I have it memorized and then when I read it, forget it. Um, but anyways, um, he gave his life, he gave his life because of his love for us. 
Then let's go on to Philippians 2. We're going to read down through verses 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. For though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So we know the ultimate love and sacrifice. We know what that is now. So then what should we do in response? Well, this passage says that we should have the same attitude that is in Christ Jesus, that we should humbly <clears throat> lay down our lives. Um, continuing in 1 John 3, 16b and 17. So as a result of Jesus laying down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how, <clears throat> how can the love of God be in that person? So the first point here is my love for God is tested through generosity to people. A natural outflow from me knowing the ultimate giver is that we will in turn be generous. The reality according to this passage is that another person in need should cause us to feel something for them. It should cause not only for a feeling, but an action. It should cause us to have that feeling of pity. And this is defined as this. A feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering of others. But it shouldn't just stay with that movement of that feeling. This movement inside of us should lead us to action. Some sort of action. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going around constantly handing out money to those in need, but it means that we are moved to help meet a need. Verse 18 in 1 John chapter 3. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. <clears throat> The second part of the test is my generosity to people is tested through action. My generosity to people is tested through action. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, Paul says this, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you also excel excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is such a compliment for the Corinthian believers. He, Paul is saying here, their faith, their speech, their knowledge, their earnestness and love has excelled. 
That is a great compliment. And I would say, looking out here today, I would say that is what I see here. I see incredible amounts of faith with, with all you here at Bridgewater. Like, I see incredible amounts of, of growing knowledge and, and, and in love for one another. I, I see it. That's, that's why people keep coming. Because they're shown that love. But could the same compliment be said of generosity? Would it be said of Susie here today or Bob here today that he or she is a generous person? That was just general. If you're Susie or Bob, I'm sorry. All right. If it, it, would it be said of each one of us, oh, yep, Susie's a generous person. Yep, Bob is a generous person. Do I know that if I'm in need, that he or she would help? Sometimes we can get so caught up in doing the work of ministry and learning about what, learning even about God, which is good, we, but we don't let God do the work in us that truly transforms us. We have shown to be a generous church in this community, but would that be something that's said of us individually? Does it come out as a natural result of what God has done in my life that I want to love and be generous to my coworker, to my neighbor. <clears throat> it's important to point out here, though, that I don't do this to earn God's favor or his blessing. Qu actually, quite the opposite. John argues that we are generous in response to God's favor and blessing as a result of what he's done for us. Because God was generous to me in Jesus, I am then generous to others. We give because he gave. We give because he gave. <clears throat> so why is it better to give? You've heard it said it's better to give than to receive. Why is it better? Giving kills self-centeredness. If we care so much for others that we're concerned with giving and helping them, oftentimes we can become less concerned with ourselves, and our focus becomes others-focused rather than self-focused. So giving kills self-centeredness. Giving removes the love of money. Giving expresses our happiness and contentment found in the promises of God. This increase, it increases our trust that, you know what, God's going to take care of us. When we love God and his word more than money and the things of this world, we break the bonds of attachment that we might have to greed or to coveting things. So giving removes the love of money. Giving fuels our mission. Giving fuels our mission. We constantly talk about making more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to show the grace of God to others, to, be, to do that sacrificially and to help those that are in need. But it can also lead more people to Jesus. My, sacrifice, my sacrificial giving can lead more people to Jesus. So it fuels our mission. When we think of our core values here with this particular one, we mostly think of money. But it's so much more than that. It's about a heart attitude towards life. It's more than just our wallets. It's, it affects how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So some practical things I'm going to ask you to do here. The first of which is to take stock of your resources. Take stock of your resources. I can tell you, I can be honest with you and say there's been plenty of times in my life where I've been prompted to be generous, but because I do a poor job with my spending, I, I don't do it. I either don't make the decision or I can't make the decision to be generous. So take stock of your resources. Be willing to budget your money. Be willing to say no to certain things that um, you don't need um, so that you can then in turn see what you have so that you're able to more freely give. So take stock of your resources and then identify a need you can meet. This requires relationships with people. You got to know, like we talked about last week, pray, invest, invite. We got to know what's going on in people's lives. We have to be involved if we're going to be able to identify a need that can be met. So identify a need that can be met. And next, simple, right? Meet that need, right? Meet that need. Whatever that need might be, either either provide it directly or find a way to help that need get met for that person. And then the last one there is repeat. Right? So go through this, take stock of your resources, identify a need, meet that need, and then repeat. Now, <clears throat> we can give in a lot of different ways as a result of what God has done for us. We can give of our time. We can give of our service. Um, we can give of our money, and we can give of listening. Those are all very valuable things that we can give because he gave. But you might say this, to me. You might say, Kurt, you don't understand. People take advantage of people that are generous. Yep, I know. This is true. People can take advantage, but God is not saying, be generous, but stop if you find people taking advantage. He doesn't say that. He wants, when other people to think of us, to think of you and me that we are generous people. Now, that doesn't mean that we act like ATM machines for people and we just give, give out without even thinking. We see how we can meet the needs and we do our best to try and meet those needs. For example, someone is in need financially. They can't pay their electric bill. It means that you connect with them. Maybe you connect with them and you find resources like Interfaith or CEO or, or the Benevolence Fund. Um, or maybe you pull it out of your own pocket to help them with that particular need. But it might come down to it where you're, there's a repeated need, so you have to evaluate a need for something else. You might have to evaluate a need for a lifestyle change. For to, they need to maybe make different decisions. Maybe they need to learn how to budget. Maybe they, maybe they knew, need a new housing situation. Things like that. That might mean connecting them with resources like Financial Peace University, which is a class that we do here. Or maybe just sitting down with them and helping them with those decisions of life. Maybe connecting them in small groups. Right? Excellent choice there. At some point, you may need to set limits with people, but by all means, that does not mean that you stop being generous. Don't let those who have difficulty changing cause you to become callous about what God has 
called you to do, and that is to be generous. Imagine what Jesus might say when you're responding to that person. And so I ask as, as we enter this new school year of this, this fall season that you prayerfully consider how you can best be used by God to meet the needs of others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are good. We thank you for the free gift of salvation that you have offered. I do pray, God, if anyone does not know you today, that today would be the day that they trust in you. And I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts and out of the overflow of our love for you, God, we would love others and that we would be generous, Lord. We thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus for the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have life. And we'll praise you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.